Welcome to the Road to Success podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Celebrity Speakers New Zealand. They are Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency and have been for the last 30 years. Today, my guest is Melissa Clark Reynolds and she is one of Celebrity Speakers' top keynote speakers. So if you or your organisation are interested in having her speak at your next event, which you are sure to after you listen to this, then head to celebritiespeakers.co.nz and inquire with the friendly team. In the meantime, enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with serial tech entrepreneur, Melissa Clark Reynolds. <laughs> Melissa Clark Reynolds, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's just so lovely to be here. Now, look, if I'm completely honest, I've been actually lucky enough to uh, attend the strategy day that you ran as a part of the um, Institute of Directors course uh, in Queenstown a while ago. So I know a little bit, bit about you from there and I've also obviously been uh, preparing for this. I've done a bit of researching and the more I sort of look into you, the more sort of strings to your bio I find and these different things that you've done over the years. And so um, maybe I, I thought let's sort of start there. So can you maybe sort of synthesize who you are and I guess what you've sort of spent your working career doing? Oh, look, I guess there's a few different things that have come together for me. I'm kind of lucky because I'm in my 50s now and um, and it feels like these different threads of my life have finally synthesized into a pattern that makes sense. And I, I use that word pattern because I, I look back at my career and I'm basically, my superpower is pattern recognition. And um, I did a, an anthropology degree at university and I think about that being all about patterns of culture. So um, I'm interested in, in like what people think, how they behave, what we do in groups. Um, and then I went back to university, you know, anthropology um, seemed kind of romantic, but I got my first job in the back blocks of New Guinea, eight hours by health department from the middle of nowhere, like literally the nearest phone was eight hours away. And um, my job was to hand out condoms and diaphragms in the middle of nowhere. And I I just thought, oh my God, I can't believe I trained for four years to do this. And being a a Kiwi, I basically looked around and I was there to be a public health worker. And I was like, if we dug toilets and I put in some plumbing, like we could do a whole lot more for public health than like small rubber items that perish at 40 degree heat, you know? And so, um, I wanted to go back to university and do engineering and kind of what happened along the way is that um, I was a single mum, I applied to go to Canterbury, um, got in and then I said, oh, I have to come part-time because I've got a kid. And back in those days, you couldn't go part-time. Just kind of explained why there were so few women at, at, at Canterbury Uni doing engineering. But like not necessarily other people's version of logic, but I just started applying to international universities and I, I got into Rutgers in New Jersey. And so I ended up doing a master's half at Rutgers and half at what is the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. And I just sort of followed interesting people around and I discovered that, you know, I'd been really good at maths at school and I just loved um, applied maths. And so the most useful place to be using applied maths at that point was as, as an epidemiologist. And so I, I took right through my master's, I studied things like environmental and occupational epidemiology. Um, I studied research methods. And so I've got this background that on one hand is very strong in that sort of social science people, but 
And on the other side, I took things like toxicology and, and epidemiology. And, um, and I just really love being able to bring those patterns of numbers, patterns of, of, um, of science, really, together with patterns of human behavior. And so along the way, I, I started a couple of uh, software companies. I ended up building what was the biggest of New Zealand's private ACC insurers when we had private ACC in the 90s really off the back of software that I designed and was writing with my team um, to manage premium and claims. Um, I went on to be CE of a couple of other software companies, founded a computer games company, um, largely because my little one was uh, playing on the internet and I didn't really like what she was up to. And I wanted something a bit more wholesome and um, grew that company, took it to the UK. Um, and then I got involved in, in online TV. And, um, and then in 2016, I got to go to a program at Stanford University for the primary sector. I was doing quite a lot of consulting work for New Zealand's larger agricultural companies. So I got to go and do this and we had half a day with a futurist and I fell in love. And so two weeks later, I was back in Silicon Valley training with the Institute for the Future as the, a foresight practitioner, futurist. And I've been running a company, New Zealand Centre for the Future, um, ever since. So um, we've got a wide range of clients, almost all of them in food and agriculture, but not necessarily. Um, food and agriculture is very broad, so it includes doing strategy for a number of um, ports, logistics companies, um, providing advice and foresight on things like pandemics um, and so on. So, so kind of a long story, but I, I guess I just feel really lucky at this point in my life that that all of those threads of being in technology, being really interested in people and having a very solid background in, in maths and science has sort of come together for me. Um, so I'm, I'm just loving what I'm doing. And I, I really like speaking with celeb speakers because I get to work with really interesting clients, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an incredible background and, and um, you know, you sort of, uh, you know, you kind of, I mean, you, I guess I asked you to synthesize a, a lifelong <laughs> work into, into, in there, but, uh, you know, when I, when I looked you up and I was sort of looking, even just the, the, the board work you've done and the boards you've been on, just really diverse companies, you know, like, um, and as you mentioned, a few there from, from software right through and, and obviously you've, you know, you've got a, a keen interest in a, in a, in a, in a very, um, obvious skill set in technology and my, my question sort of you know we talk about being in technology in in the 90s you know like and um you know you know a, a female in technology in the 90s as well like we was technology always something that really interested you growing up or was it something that sort of came across later on yeah do you know um i'll tell you what makes me laugh about that like i learned to code in 1979 um, and uh, I was the only girl at my all-girls high school that wanted to learn to code, and so I got bused to a boys' school and because really? um, it was a boys' subject. And I'll tell you, one of the most depressing, dreary things that happened was we got to go on a school trip. Um, so I went to school in Masterton, small country school. You know, there were six girls in my, my year 13, right, and there were about 20 boys at the local boys' school. Anyway, um, the eight or nine of us or something that took tech, um, we, we went on a bus to Wellington to go and see a computer. It was very exciting. And um, we had this day trip and they showed me that if I did a computer science degree, I too could learn how to program traffic lights. <laughs> and I was just like, kill me now. Like, I can't believe it. So I didn't do computer science in my undergrad 
because it just like that was what everybody was saying was the future, you know, and it was just like so depressing. And so our school taught coding, but we didn't have a single computer in the school. So we used to have to do punch cards, mail them to Wellington. And two weeks later, a self-addressed envelope would come back and you'd find out whether your code ran. And some poor kid, he just spent the whole year like on the same first piece of code, I think. I know, it was awful. But so when I went to university, though, because I could code, I did use the mainframes and um, and I, I used to hack into the library service so that I could get the books I wanted. You know, they still had like the restricted section. So I'd just sort of chat up the librarians and find out the name of their favorite poodle or something. And that would almost always be their password. And so I never really thought about it being dodgy. I was just using the skills I had. And when I went to the States to university, what was fascinating, so this is now the late 80s, um, I was in a class of 150 students studying epidemiology. I was the only one who knew how to code. And so very quickly what happened is that we'd do teamwork and I'd get to be the one who, um, who got to go and do all of the programming. And a large amount of why I ended up in tech was because there weren't great tools for doing what we wanted to do. So for example, we were working on early AIDS, HIV research, and we, we just had, um, you know, computers that were sort of the size of an Excel spreadsheet now, and it would take hours. Like I, used to, to I used to have to code to go on the internet in 1989, and you actually had to code in the URL, you know, the dub, dub, dub thing. You mm -hmm. actually had to code that in and tell this thing to go looking for that, and then I could download data I, I started playing computer games because it would take me 12 hours to download, you know, a small spreadsheet that I can see on my phone now. Yeah. But so being a woman at the beginning, um, I was always sort of the only woman in the room, you know, there were very few women doing any kind of, of the supplied maths, very few women doing, um, doing the kind of advanced code. Um, I started working on what became predictive analytics in those late 80s, really because what I was wanting to do is predict where the HIV epidemic was going to go. And at the same time, I was working on um, environmental projects where I was trying to map pollution flows into the Chesapeake Bay or, you know, if we put pollution into the Waikato River, what was it going to do? And they're very similar, those kinds of dynamics, predicting like fluid dynamics or predicting epidemics. The code is actually not that dissimilar. Um, mm. And I, I just really loved the challenge of it. And actually, I really, um, even though I was the only woman in the room, I didn't really have a hard time with that. I think in technology, back then especially, it was quite a meritocracy. It was like the beauty of the code. And if you were any good at what you did, that was what it was. And so the downside of that was that I was probably in my 30s before I really experienced serious sexism. I kind of didn't have the tools to deal with it, you know, but my early career... Um, I worked with fantastic guys. It didn't really seem to matter that I was the only woman in the room. And you know what? Like, I'm still the only woman in the room on a lot of stuff. You know, I sit on a meat company board where I'm the first woman that has ever sat in that room. Um, it's not, it's still sadly not that unusual, um, particularly in the primary sector. There's a lot of uh, boards out there that have never had a woman senior manager and never had a woman on the board, you know. Mm. 
and and you you talk, talked about interesting there about um you know the the even your environmental stuff and it it all comes back to that that pattern pattern recognition stuff that you were talking about and and I guess you know that sort of that interest you had in technology and you talked you know when you when you first sort of talked about your life you sort of talked about this sort of confluence of all your skills and it, it sort of certainly seems that that sort of that sort of been the case and you've you've gone on to obviously receive a you know be recognised um you know by the Queen essentially for your services to technology so um, yeah. well, that's that's amazing to start with and I did a bit of it's really hard to find but I tr- are you the only <laughs> woman to receive that um I don't know if there's anyone since but at the time I was certainly the first woman to get the ONZM for services to technology yeah. and I was super proud of that um you know, somebody will have nominated me and I don't know who it is and it's kind of a lovely thing um but I I, I when I first got it I was um I mean, I was really pleased, but what I found fascinating actually has been the women in technology community was so delighted to have a sister get an award. And Mm -hmm. I think that's been probably one of the nicest things about getting the award is I felt like the sisterhood in a sense Mm -hmm. got an honor and, um, yeah, you know, and it has been, it's just been a lovely thing to have. And so the ONZM, um, you know, it's basically the old OBE, um, mm. but we've, you know, NZ'd it. And um, I feel like way too young to be an OBE or something, but it's it has been a really great honour. And I hope that um, for the new generations of women coming through, that the women who are trailblazers and there were, you know, there's a bunch of us who are of my age, you know, I've got four or five friends that we joke, like we can't be in the same room at the same time because if you've got <laughs> one geeky blonde, you've kind of got enough, you know, and it shouldn't be like that. But there are a bunch of these women in New Zealand who we don't get to be on boards together because you only like choose one of us. Um, but we'd love to play on on some of the same projects. So yeah. yeah. So I, um, as far as I know, I don't know if any other women have, but if not, um, we better get nominating. Yeah. So oh, it's, it's an amazing recognition. And, you know, like when you think that you said you were like coding, was it 78, did you say? 79. 79, you know, like coding, yeah. you know, on, on those punch cards and sending them off to Wellington and essentially been a, you know, God, I, I went to high school when I started in, in 1999 and, um, you know, I, even our computer classes then was more about typing than actually you yeah. know, anything anything to do with, uh, you know, programming. So, uh, you know, certainly recognition for, a, for a, a, you know, a, a life's work in that field. And um, you know, what was sort of, you know, obviously you went through um, uh, the stage of sort of your entrepreneurial journey at the start and it was, it was it was more about you know building businesses and um where did you sort of i mean or did you make a switch to the point where you i, I don't know if you're currently a, a working or have sort of you know um in your own business or anything well when did you make that switch to th- realizing that hey my skill set and what i'm doing i can actually have a, a broader impact and do more things that i'm interested in when i start working at a at a higher level rather than sort of being involved yeah. in, a, in a company day to day Oh, I think there are a couple of things. So like I um, I sort of was an accidental entrepreneur and I mentioned that I was a single mum and um, and I'd, I'd actually gone to university at 15. So I was the youngest woman to have gone to university when I went. Um, I now know of a lovely, um, well, there's actually a few, um, a few, a few young women have gone through since, but, um, but I sort of held that record for about 20 years, I think. And so it meant that even when I graduated, I was on youth rates which kind of rankled, right? 
and um, and then then I had my son, and um, and I realised it was sort of more like I couldn't afford not to work, couldn't afford childcare. And I was really lucky enough to have been invited to a weekend with Robert Kiyosaki, who some people will know of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad fame. Mm -hmm. And I did a three-day workshop with him um, called Money and You. It's like very 1990s, but it really worked for me. And it just suddenly dawned on me that I I could run my own company. And so... I felt very driven in my 20s and 30s and actually probably in my 40s too to build businesses. And um, and then more interestingly, I suppose, in the last few years, um, I mean, I do have a business and I have a team, but I, I don't really now want to build anything at scale. I'm really interested in how do I deal with like wicked problems, which are those intractable, really difficult things that maybe a small group of people have to pack around and crack. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm much more interested in doing at this point in my life. Like I, I'm never someone, I, I can't imagine retiring. You know, my dad still works in his 80s. He still runs every day. Um, and I think for me, he's a bit of a role model on that. Like, um, so long as my brain is busy, I'm not that interested in stopping. But I actually just got to a point, no, maybe six or seven years ago, where I just didn't want a big team anymore. Um, mm. I still like being on a team, but I, I just didn't really want to leverage that through employment. And about the same time, I realized that as a company director, the only tool you have in your toolbox as a company director is influence. You can't actually make anything happen. You can't direct anything. You don't, you've only got the CE, you know, you don't have like a little army of people that you can get to go and do something. And so I feel like being a company director, it's all about influence. And so now being on a number of boards and I I have a mix of not-for-profit and for-profit, I can have much greater influence than I did as a CE of one company or a founder of one company mm-hmm. because in a way I'm coaching multiple yes. CEs. I'm having, um, being able to help them to grow their businesses. You know, I do have a theme where I'm, I'm really interested in like people and planet. So it's not like my directorships are random to me, but you know, I am on a meat board and I am on a lines company board and some people think that's odd, but The meat company board, you know, we're all about how do we raise the income of New Zealand farmers through doing the right thing for the soil, the right thing for our animals and the right thing for the planet. And then on a lines company, you know, they're the real businesses in New Zealand that are at the forefront of decarbonisation of our economy. You know, Um, so, you know, I'm on the board in Timaru. We've got multiple like Fonterra plants with coal and process heat users making chips or, you know, seeds or all sorts of things. And so we really need to be the people at the forefront of actually solving how we how we decarbonize the economy. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. I like these wicked problems, but I don't want to be CE of a company like that. I want to do multiple things now. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be, can you give me an example of a wicked problem? But you've just given me three, and and I certainly see why you call them wicked as well. <laughs> well I love goodness. that idea of wicked problems. You know, there are some things that it's really easy to solve, and there are some that you just need a lot of people around. Mm. And, you know, we were talking before we started about things like, you know, what are the challenges for the New Zealand border at the moment? Or, mm. you know, you've got six agencies in New Zealand that work the border. Those Those are really tricky negotiations that go on or... You know, um, we've got 
um, I work with a logistics company that's co-owned by Silverfern Farms in Fonterra. In the last two years, you know, logistics has just been such a difficult thing. And New Zealand economy is still dependent on our agricultural exports. If we can't get them to market, we're in deep trouble, right? Mm, so yeah. I love those really difficult problems that I get to work with really interesting people on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's obviously a natural progression. You know, my original question was how did you go from, you know, entrepreneur to sort of what you're doing now? And obviously as your your skill set and experience and knowledge uh, grow and develop as they have with you, you sort of become, I guess you can be more um, more, more um, sort of potent with the t- with your time when you're sort of acting at, the, at that sort of level. Um, I'd be interested to sort of talk to you a little bit about COVID because obviously, you know, I didn't realise until you mentioned it leading up to this interview <laughs> that you sort of, um, you know, you originally was sort of an epidemiology, um, which is a term that uh, not many people knew in 2019, but uh, it's a bit more widespread now. And so, I mean, you know, you talked about your interests as as people in the planet. You're obviously, um, you know, you're, you're, your insight and your your reach is quite diverse into the industries you're in, but you're also just sort of you seem um, pretty specific about a, a, a number of different sort of things. So I'm quite interested just to just to get you know your take. And I know this is a big question, so you know what? How do you see you know COVID playing out in in New Zealand and particularly over the sort of the coming years and, and even sort yeah. of how we've dealt with it today? I might back the truck up a bit, which is um, in uh, 1990, I wrote a report for the Ministry for the Environment predicting that this year, 2022, would be the year that dengue fever became endemic in Nelson. So um, I'm kind of hoping I'm wrong, but but I studied climate epidemiology and climate... um, both, both from the environmental point of view, I did courses in climate and then I did um, the environmental epidemiology at, at um, med school. And so, you know, what was really interesting is that if we look back over the last, say, 20 years, what we see is that there is a pandemic about every three, three and a half years. And they generally are um, viruses that cross from being a zoonosis, so they come from being an animal disease, they cross over into the into the humans um, and become a human disease. And so we can look back and we can say, you know, there was MERS and there was SARS and, and, and Ebola and so on. And so, um, so what's kind of interesting is this one turned up like day and date when it was expected. And so I think there were a lot of people out looking for what it was going to be. And um, from an agriculture point of view, the two things that really come together is um, climate change increases the frequency of these events. And then the other one is that animal agriculture expanding into rainforest particularly, but into areas where we haven't farmed mammals before massively increases the risk of these pandemics. So um, so what you could imagine is that, um, you know, I'm on the lookout because I, the next one to me is going to come out of South America or Indonesia or China. And the reason that I believe that is because we're expanding animal agriculture into those rainforests. And there are monkeys, which are very similar to us, who will have diseases that um, we haven't been exposed to in mass before. And then there'll be things like bats. And there's about another two and a half thousand coronaviruses in bats. Um, and so what was interesting with this one is that in 2019, the 
New Zealand agricultural sector just printed cash, okay? And one of the reasons that it made so much money was that there's a global pandemic going on um, in pigs, African swine fever. And this meant that pigs were being culled globally and especially in China. And these animal pandemics go on and they have their own cycle as well, okay? So, um, so we were watching that pandemic very, very closely in 2019. And I was watching China in particular in late 2019, um, some doctors came out and they said that there were 27 people with a novel, like a new respiratory virus um, that they were treating in China and that it was highly contagious. Now, what was fascinating to me, putting on that patent recognition hat, was that they then got put in jail. Okay, so if you're a social scientist and you're looking at China and you go, wow, really interesting. Here's some doctors who've been whistleblowers. And next thing you know, they're in jail. You sit up, right? So that's patent recognition number one. So so I sat up pretty like tall uh, in December 2019 going, something's going down here. Don't know what it's going to be but it's really interesting. And then um, by the 23rd of January, one of the big medical journals that I monitor published their first report that did the genomic sequencing out of China. And what they found was that this, the virus had come from a bat through a pangolin, which is a little animal that you can buy the meat in, in these markets in China and then to a human. And this is where humans cause these pandemics because there's no natural habitat that those three animals hang out, a human and a pangolin and a bat. And so we did it, right? And then the 7th of February, what happened is that uh, the Chinese shipping news, which I monitor for my clients, um, ran, the China ran out of refrigerated containers. And the same day, the first of those doctors died in jail. And so for me, that's when I knew that that was seriously on, right? And you can see at that point, that's not straight like uh, maths or anything. That's where these things, we're understanding patterns. Ah, that you go to jail in China for telling the truth. Now this guy's died on the same day that the, the ports are starting to collapse. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I, back then, I think I thought it was going to be, I don't know, six to 18 months maybe of supply chain disruption. Um, I didn't expect it to go on as long as it has. And I think part of why I didn't expect it to go on as long as it has is um, Imperial College of London in the UK, who are real gurus in epidemic management, put out a report that talked about how to suppress the virus and how to basically eliminate it within six months. Um, So I just read it and went, well, that's pretty smart. Let's do that, you know. And it turned out that there were sort of five countries in the world who did that, and the rest went, oh, no, let it rip. (laughs) And And New Zealand is one of those, I'm sure. New Zealand was one of those. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for the first sort of 18 months of the pandemic, we had like the lowest death rates. We had the most functioning economy. Um, I know it sounds awful, but for all those people who were homeschooling, you should understand that we were um, in the top three, um, like most days in school globally for kids in the world. Um, over this pandemic period. So our kids went to school, our businesses were open, um, our economy was really strong and our death rate was really low. Um, and um, and so, you know, OECD and others were writing report after report about how strong the New Zealand economy was compared to globally. 
and um and I yeah I just didn't I didn't think that people would be so stupid as to let it rip and because when you let it rip what will happen is that you get new variants because viruses mutate all the time and so the longer you let something like this run the more variants there will be and it is true that over time they generally become less deadly but it's not like there's some central control measuring this. So they throw some like Delta that are more, and they'll throw some like this Omicron BA2 variant we've got in New Zealand at the moment that is more contagious. Um, and you can't always tell, like not it's not a linear, you know, kind of progression. So this question that you really asked me, which is what happens next, mm. um, I guess like I'm going to say I don't know. Um, and part of why I don't know is because um, I've been really surprised in this last little period that we've gone from having what was really one of the world's best responses on all measures, right? Death, strong economy, um, and in fact, New Zealand was one of two countries in the world that increased its life expectancy in the last two years. I mean, everywhere else, people have just died, right? Um, so, so I kind of look at it and I go, it's really interesting. So we're moving into a period where we're going to go without masks and we're, we're reducing the vaccination. Um, the uptake of the third shot hasn't been all that good. We know that people will need a fourth at some point. Um, so, so I think we have to accept that there will be frequent vaccinations that, um, we know with BA2 that natural immunity doesn't last very long and lasts a lot shorter than vaccinated immunity. So we have to expect that, um, that our children in particular, because they can't get vaccinated, they're going back into schools where they're not going to have protections, particularly going into the winter. Um, so you can't really leave windows open you know in Canterbury for the whole of the winter say yeah. um, we don't have ventilation and they're not going to have masks so we have to accept that families are going to continue to be sick I would say for the next six months at least yeah. as multiple waves now of Omicron will come through so not very cheerful um, I think that's going to have economic impacts that we're not really prepared for Do you know like I think people have got in um, say tourism and hospitality have got frustrated but um, but things like meat processors, you know, they're going to have people off sick um, because if you've got kids in the house and they're going to daycare or they're going to school, um, they will just bring stuff home. So, so I think we've, I think we've, we've set ourselves up for a, a bit of a harsh winter. To be fair. Yeah, yeah, and just you know, uh, for 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 reference, we're um, talking about this on April fourteenth, um, so people might be listening to it at a later date, just so they yeah. can um, you know reference it time wise. Um, yeah, it's certainly interesting. I mean, one of the more interesting things for me, um, you know, has sort of been the um, obviously there's been a lot of unintended, unintended consequences, and maybe for someone with your level of of of, of insight and, and probably intelligence as well can sort <laughs> of foresee, but um, you know, certainly there's been a lot of unintended consequences. I mean. Um, you know, like for example, like straight afterwards, you know, like you talk about New Zealand economy, like obviously travel and tourism, you know, were, were hugely affected, but most other industries actually tended to perform better than they yeah. had. And, and 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 if you weren't isolated to even maybe hospitality would maybe I'd group that in there slightly as well, but um, which is why our economy was so strong and it showed you how much money generally went offshore that was all staying here. Yeah. People had all this disposable income. They couldn't go anywhere. They were spending in the country and, and because they weren't going anywhere, that money was staying in the country and it was just going back around and it was this, this sort of yep. sort of like bubble period and, um, you know, and a, a lot of industries and a lot 
lot of businesses did did very well through that, and yeah. and now we're starting to see the the tail end of what's happening, and and with the world opening up, it'll be. And like you said, you don't know, and I guess that's the same with no. everyone. And if, we, and if we did know, we wouldn't be here in the first place, because true. But fl- then there are a few other those patterns that we can see, right? So you're right. Like um, I said, how you know 2019 was a record year for our protein producers. Well, so was 2000, and um, you know 2020, and so was 2021. And um, I can't. See, the, the main reason that 2022 won't be a record if it isn't is because we'll have too many sick workers, which means that they will productivity will drop in 2022. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so we just built on it, particularly in the protein sector, because um, so much of the rest of the world messed up their response that they, they couldn't run their processing facilities, they couldn't run their dairy factories, they couldn't run their supermarkets and so on. And so we were able to really fill a gap because our farmers and our processors were at work. Um, 2022, you know, if you follow any kind of farming Twitter or anything, you'll know that people just can't even get their meat killed at the moment in New Zealand because there's so many workers off sick. And if we decide that we're going to let that kind of carry on for the rest of the year, we have to accept that productivity is going to be low in New Zealand yeah. in 2022. Mm. So, so let me talk about a couple of other patterns that I think are really interesting out of the pandemic. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so you talked, um, you know, well, we were talking before we started about like that first six week lockdown. What was fascinating in New Zealand, um, and I've got some slides I, I I talked to about this, is that in that first six week lockdown, people complained about homeschooling. Okay, but if we look at their Google searches and we look at their um, online spending, I don't think you'll be surprised to find out that basically what New Zealanders did on mass was buy gaming gear. So, um, so the top ten searches uh, in that first lockdown were basically for a Nintendo Switch, for a Sony PlayStation, for a couple of kinds of headphones, for an upgrade to the iPhone and an upgrade to the Samsung, and then upgrades to the Switch and the PlayStation. And um, coming in at about number eleven was Lego. So nowhere in the top 100 searches was anything to do with help my kid learn to read, uh, <laughs> teach them maths. Like there was nothing. No, yeah. we, we didn't buy extra books. We didn't um, buy kids' books. We didn't um, buy any online resources for teaching at home. We basically, we went, oh, my God, I'm trying to do my job, go and sit in front of the TV and play computer games. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like I, I come out of a background in gaming. Our kids are going to be fine. Like trust me, they're going to be absolutely fine. Um, but what's fascinating is that after the big gaming boom, we did a few other things. So you know, we bought mixers, electric mixers. So people did do that whole nesting baking thing. Um, and you saw in New Zealand that we ran out of flour, right? Well, people bought heaps of flour. They realised that there's only so much sourdough you can. Um, make so then they went on to ginger crunch and chocolate cake and everything and then shock horror like we all realized we put on a few COVID kilos and suddenly the searches after lockdown they start looking for exercycles and running machines and Strava things for your bike and like so we had this real boom in exercise stuff and then um, finally the big thing that New Zealanders bought was um, hair trimmers and shavers and so it's a real classic, like that's what I love about the data is you can look at the data and it tells you the story of the pandemic. And um, so I'm really interested when you talked about like we couldn't go overseas, 
what happened when we couldn't go overseas is we all started nesting, right? We bought so, video games, cake mixes, and exercycles. <laughs> we did, but then after that, we realized that we were stuck in our homes for the duration, that um, my living room was now my office. And um, turns out that, you know, at the moment, we've got three of us working at home. You know, adult daughters come home from Melbourne. So you've got three adults in a, in a house working from home. So what did the rest of New Zealand do? They went and they're, they're buying a new kitchen. You know, they are putting in a spare room. They're renovating. Um, and I know this is an economic divide, right? So the people who have nothing are not doing this. But anyone with money in New Zealand seems to currently be redecorating and coming back to patterns, if you look at like um, things like Netflix, find it really interesting. So two years ago during the pandemic, everyone was watching all of those like British Bake Off and all kinds of like cake competition shows. Mm-hmm. Um, where people are watching now is all these home decorating shows. So there's been this just explosion in home decorating competition shows. And, you know, we had the block before, say, but... But that was just like a forerunner. What you can see now is just, yeah, McGee and Co. and all these um, home decorating shows. And so I think there's something there about when you start to look around, you can see the patterns. Uh, So, yeah. So I I think that that home decorating boom is going on for a little bit longer. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting, and, and which is interesting as well. You know, when we talk about the, you know, when we compare the the pattern that you're seeing at the moment with the the productivity shortage with with people, um, you know, with with COVID and even the supply chain. You know, like as of you know today, we look at things like you know, building supplies um, uh, are incredibly hard to come by certain products, at least anyway. And um, you know, we've got this 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 loss in productivity with you know people being sick and having to isolate over the next few months. That say, um, yeah, your insiders. Certainly, really interesting, and the way you see things and the, the things you're looking at is um, is something that you know I wouldn't really, um, or certainly I don't. But that's also why I'm not, I'm not uh, you, and don't do I've what you do. I've got one more for you. So, Absolutely. So anybody who's like watching for a bit, you can come back and tell me if I'm wrong. But um, I think that I didn't see the war in Ukraine coming. Do you know? I mean, I think we all just hoped that it really wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But in that productivity question that we're just talking about, there are 200,000 techs in Ukraine. So 200,000 people in Ukraine work for pretty much US or Israeli technology companies. And um, Israel was really interesting. They started evacuating their uh, Ukrainian workers about 10 days out from Putin's invasion. And the US really kept thinking that he wasn't going to do it. And so they didn't evacuate their staff. But what it means is that um, there's already this real pressure on um, Cody's. You know, we, you can't hire enough technology staff anywhere in New Zealand. But think about that. That's being multiplied out around the world. And then on top of that, we now have pretty much 200,000 like very highly skilled technology workers have just been taken off the market. And so I think that this pressure for talent is only going to be worse in the next year or so. Um, And that does affect us in New Zealand because um, international companies have discovered that with New Zealanders working from home, they also don't really mind what time zone they work in. So, you know, my next-door neighbours, there are three of them next door. They're all in their 20s. One works for a company in Portugal, one works for a company in Canada, and one works for a company um, in Texas. 
and um, they all keep weird hours and they're all happy to do it. And I think that will also continue to play out when New Zealand will be providing knowledge workers from home into the global economy. And mm. um, we're going to see more and more of that squeeze, um, productivity squeeze here as we're unable to find the tech workforce that we're looking for. Mm. And yeah. generally, generally, when that happens, you're just you're reducing uh, supply, the demand staying high, and so it essentially, like we talk about building at the moment, you know, like the the supply of 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 builders hasn't really changed dramatically, but the demands increase hugely, so it's just pushed prices up for everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's what's going to happen. And so, I think again, you know, we see this two step economy in New Zealand. Um, the the inequities are likely to continue to expand, right? So mm. um, so people who haven't got um, access to good employment, um, that group will find that they fall even further out of the economy, um, whereas knowledge workers are going to find that they've got more and more disposable income earning yep. in international dollars. And property is the classic example of that over the last couple of years, isn't it? You know, if you, yeah. if you owned a house, you know, three years ago, um, you know, and then you owned it now, it's just further um, increased that wealth divide because everyone who owned a property or multiple have, you know, seen these huge capital gains um, increases. But if you hadn't, all of a sudden, the first home just has got so far out of reach. Yeah. And, and the, the the social consequences of all these things you're talking about, I find quite interesting. And I don't know much about yeah. it. I'm, I'm certainly a, a self-confessed dummy in this sort of area. I feel well <laughs> outside my comfort zone talking to you about this species and it's recorded, but it's very interesting. And, and I, th I think that, um, you know, one of the things with the, with the, with the whole pandemic was, was certainly the social response to the way people acted and behaved. You know, we only, I sort of see what happened in New Zealand, obviously, you're probably a bit more um, globally, but, um, you know, all this stuff has seen, you know, difference, you know, it's, it's been very divisive, particularly in New Zealand, you know, and, and I, I'm not, you know, you know, talk about anything being here or there, but just the there has been a lot of um, you know, it's really that we talk about wealth, you know, diversity has increased, but I'd also say that socially it's it's sort of increased as well. With you only have to, I mean, like I said, I've, we've got a couple of businesses, and um, you know, you look with some of the restrictions that have been put in place, and there's certainly a, a, a very loud group of people that might not agree with something, and it becomes very obvious, and it can be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. The the social divide has been really remarkable in the mm -hmm. last couple of years. I think it's been interesting. Like I, I think one of the things um, that anthropology taught me is is this idea of um, both and that um, that you can have contradictions and they both be true. And so, on one hand, I think when you look at New Zealand, um, the secret to our success for the first sort of eighteen months or so of the pandemic was our collective response. So the countries that had more collectivized responses did much better in terms of death and economics than the countries with more individualized societies. So we think about the US where the death rate was enormous. Um, but if as a value, they value freedom over everything. So you can understand then if your value is freedom over life, say, or um, then, um, then you'd rather die free. Does that make sense? Whereas yeah, in New Zealand, certainly for the first 18 months or so of the pandemic, what we really expressed, and if you look at a lot of the narrative, was about taking care of each other. 
you know, I wear a mask to protect grandma, you know. Um, I wear a mask to protect um, other people. I might have COVID and not know it, and so I'm willing to um, to get a, you know, a vaccine not just for me but to stop the spread. And so the discussion in New Zealand for the first, I'd say, 18 months was very much a collective discussion. And so part of this divide that you hear is that, um, and my belief is that we've had a, a break in the narrative. So we've had this group of people who are, but what about my rights? Um, what about my individual choice? What about my business? What about me? Um, versus a, actually a much larger group in New Zealand that has taken the point of view of um, we're in this together. And I think for me, what I found interesting is that um, the division that has been exposed is a division about collectivism versus individuality. And how do we how do we bridge that? And then when we look at the numbers, because I'm a number freak, you know, of adults, we are only talking about sort of 3% in Wellington where I live that aren't vaccinated. And so it's really hard to see that as a divide. Mm. Um, you know, it's really hard to look at that and go, oh, we're a divided society um, because the numbers don't actually show that we're a divided it's, society. It's probably one of the most agreed upon, you know, if you look at anything yeah. that was 97, 97% of New Zealanders voted for a, a single party or did one specific thing, you'd say, what's well, the most majority we've ever had ever. Yeah. Yeah. And having said that, um, you know, I really felt the pain living in Wellington of the occupation that was here and there's still like, you know, 100 of them camped out around at um, Niwa and, um, you know, so I really get that for some people they have feel like the social contract has failed them and I don't know how we heal that but I think that that's also part of the pattern that we're seeing. I just mm. want to come back to this thing about collectivism and, um, yes. and individuality because if you are thinking about like being a futurist or thinking about you want to be looking for these society patterns, you know, and I think New Zealand, the other one that we um, – we is is sort of coming at us is really what it is to become bicultural. And um, and I think in here there's also in our pandemic response is having a deep think about like what it is to be Māori, what it is to be Pākehā, um, do our health system, does our health system need to respond differently? Um, so there's that. I think out of the pandemic also we need to be thinking about climate change. So there are a number of these kind of what I call drivers of change or forces that um, that any organisation now needs to be thinking about. So growing inequality, collectivism versus individuality, you know, becoming bicultural, climate, and obviously we've talked about it a wee bit, but what is it when what I call software eats the world, you know, when everything becomes digital, what is it like? And if people take a minute and they think about those kind of five big forces, they'll probably get a good insight into what's going to play out for their industry. And uh, yeah, and I think that's just an important thing. We can we can look at at a specific event like the pandemic, but out of it we can pull a number of threads, mm -hmm. and they will apply to the next pandemic. But they'll also apply to you know the future of tourism or the future of our meat industry or the future even of our insurance sector or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm certainly keen to talk about the future, as I know that's a you know a big part of what you do. One thing I'd, I'd just like to say on that sort of collectivism versus sort of individuality, it's quite interesting. I, I think, I mean, my take on it, which is you know again very uh, uneducated, but would be that 
I guess uh, that collective response you talked about certainly makes sense, and that's that sort of social contract that, yep, I'm willing to to sort of make the sacrifices for the greater good. And I think we certainly had that in New Zealand. And I guess you got to a point um, where, you know, and you said that people said, what about me? And that's where the problem turned. And, and I guess, you know, like, for example, if you're in tourism, for example, you might say, hey, look, collective good, I'm happy to, you know, I realise that my business is based on international visitors coming and I run off that. And you get to sort of 18 months or two years with no income and probably, you know, bankruptcy, you know, multiple times almost and, and the stress that that's caused on in an individual. And and you might go, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you might go for them, well, it's probably quite fair to go, hey, look, guys, I've really sacrificed a lot for the last two years now. What about me? You know, I've got a family too and I've got grandkids that I want to, you know, help and support and all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess I kind of see both sides of it and you can that social contract is a great term to say, yep, I kind of feel like it's let me down. Um, but I, from the other side of it, the individual might say, well, I've kind of, I've kind of paid my... I've, I've given forward my end of the social contract and now I sort of, and I, I don't know what's right and, and certainly yeah. the, you know, the, the collective response seems to be far more effective, but I just sort of see both angles of it, I guess. Oh, totally, and I feel for those individuals. But I, And, you know, look, I've, I've had a business too that went splat, right? Um, thought it looked like a great opportunity. The world changed around me and it didn't. You know, there was a time where owning a milk run seemed like a great business. Everyone was always going to drink milk. Um, you know, they're in their homes getting it delivered. And then at some point, owning a milk run is a liability. And um, and if we look at the bigger patterns around tourism, um, you know, we've known for probably 15 years in New Zealand that every tourism job that we add reduces our GDP. And so, you know, there's some interesting debates to be had too, I think, um, in terms of what we think our future looks like in a decarbonized world. You know, we're not we're not getting any closer to Europe or the US or China where we where our customers are. And so, you know, there's a point here somewhere where we have to use things like foresight tools to be able to go, well, will that business ever come back? And was it that on a trajectory that um that wasn't sustainable and this just accelerated it? You know, and the pandemic has accelerated a lot of things. It's massively accelerated the uptake of technology, right? It's massively up, up um, increased like the amount of time people spend online, like on everything, right? Um, it's um, it's actually interestingly, you know, in New Zealand, it's decreased death from all causes, including mental health causes. So, so there are different things that accelerate, and you know, I don't want to sound harsh here, but businesses come and go, and there are points where you sort of have to go, am I just being bloody-minded? And this is, I suppose, the conversation I've had to have with myself as an entrepreneur. You know, am I being bloody-minded about this, or has the opportunity actually now gone? And would I be better to cut my losses here and to invest it in a different business? And, mm. um, and you know, and I'm, I'm not... Um, uh, having said that, you know, I just know that I grieved for years when I had a business fail. So I'm not, I'm not saying that with any harshness. I just say it out of, um, like, being an entrepreneur, you're not guaranteed, or being a business owner, you're not guaranteed that your market will stay there forever. And you know, even my own business, we've had to pivot and change. And um, what was in my business plan two years ago and what I'm doing now are not the same thing in any way whatsoever. And that's that's about being nimble, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you were doing this two years ago, you know. 
Um, so we've all had to create new businesses. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly changed the way the you know I'd never done a podcast um, you know over the internet, and now I do them all this way. And uh, and even you know like you obviously work with celebrity speakers and so do I, you know, the, the thought of the thought of speaking to a large group of people sitting in your living room, you know, with a with a nice ter- shirt on but your slippers on is uh is is something that we didn't even fathom two years ago. And it certainly has, you know, encouraged a lot of people to to adapt and, and change and pivot. And I think like you said, I think it more just accelerated, um, you know, what was happening. And one thing I I'm not sure who said it, but uh, um it was that the technology um just exposes us you know it's sort of if if, if you're good at something technology doesn't uh, change that it can accelerate the amount of people that you can be good to or increase the amount of people that you've been good to if you're really bad at something putting a technology service over the top of it is just going to (laughs) just further expose to more people that you're not very good at something yeah well coming back to think about like what it's done for us in that um, celebrity speaker space is I've had more international work in the last two years than I could have imagined. Do you know, I've mm-hmm. I've spoken at the Ontario Sheep Farmers Annual Conference. I've spoken at uh, India's annual CIO conference. Um, I've spoken at conferences in South America. I spoke to the, the South American Dairy Conference. I've run training courses in Portugal. Um, all of this, they're things that I would not have traveled for. You know, I wouldn't have flown mm-hmm. to India to do a one-hour keynote to their chief um, information officers annual conference Mm -hmm. but I was able to do it from home and so I've actually really loved that even though at the beginning some of the tech was a bit off-putting I think that coming back to that idea about influence and reach um, for me the pandemic has massively increased my ability to have that global reach in a way that I hadn't expected and hadn't you know even as a futurist I hadn't really seen coming Mm. Um, so I, and I, I'm hoping that that won't go back. I know that we all are desperate to hang out with our friends and to go and, um, be at some events where you bump into people you don't know. But at the same time, I think that, you know, there's a whole lot of those events that will just stay online now because it's cheaper. It's better for the planet. You can get much better global speakers. Mm. Um, you can put together a conference program in a way that you never could before. So, I don't think that's yeah, changing. Absolutely, and you know, and, and I agree. You know, with with events specifically, um, it's the it's the smaller stuff that we have, I, I still think is important. That you know, I think there's value. I mean, your insight would be interesting in this. Is the the the, the value of you know, you've probably done board meetings, you know, through Zoom over the last the the last um, you know couple of years. And I, my personal opinion is that I, I still don't I don't think you get the same out of it as if you're you're able to to meet with people and talk and and those you know, as I learned from the course, you know, was, was certainly there was a, a lot about relationships um, on on a board and and the the um, you know the interpersonal sort of relationships that develop over time, and I still think, yep, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do things online, but I still think there's real value in, in the relationships that we have and that we build, regardless of you know whether it's a if it's a you know people in a workplace or it's at a board level. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, it's the um, it's all the stuff that happens, you know, over breakfast or over drinks or dinner after the meeting. And I think that the boards I'm on that function really well online are the ones that were already functioning well in person. Yeah. And we've just taken those relationships and we've brought them over to an online world. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, that's probably I the think, same with most workplaces as well. Yeah. Where they had strong relationships already, they're still strong. Yeah. 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 But what I've also found is the rise of really cool tools. So I don't know if you've come across like Miro or um, Mural. 
Um, there's some really cool tools now out there for running um, fantastic events. Like I just love them where you can do, um, I ran 10 workshops recently for a not-for-profit um, where we were doing values workshops and um, we had these online tools and I think everyone was a little anxious about it. Um, so we used the software called Mural and we were able to post it note in real time write notes on each other's stuff we're talking on zoom you know so you've got half a dozen people like nice small groups so everyone can hear but at the same time everyone can see what everybody else is collaborating and in some ways I think for that and they didn't even necessarily know each other that well um an hour and a half there I think was better than perhaps two and a half hours in person Mm -hmm. so there are some of these tools now I think that are, are emerging if you yeah, I set myself a challenge at the beginning of lockdown. Like, how could I how could I make the online experience better than face to face? And it isn't always, but a lot of the time now, I can actually, I think I can magic that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly very interesting. Hey, look, I've um, I've realized I've I've been so interested and intrigued in this, <laughs> and I also know that I haven't I've re- haven't really asked you any of the questions I had written <laughs> down. So I'll just finish with a couple because I, I am conscious okay, cool. of your time. Um, obviously, you've had a you know a diverse, but you know certainly from the outside a very successful career. Um, what I'm sort of interested in is how have you. Um, looked after your yourself. How have you main, been main, been able to maintain, you know, being productive, being healthy, being efficient with your time and energy? Because I know, you know, again, just the stuff that you've listed, the things that you've done, and the things that you're even doing at the same time. Um, it's <laughs> it's a it's a lot of work, and it can be a lot of stress. But at the same time, to be able to do it, you know, to the the, the time and the quality that you have, you've obviously been able to look after yourself really well as well. Um, oh look, I I really believe that um, you have to you have to do a few things. So um, one of them is that like I get paid to think and read, you know. So part of why I'm so multi interested and in stuff is it's my job, right? Um, so I've managed to create a career at the moment for myself that involves spending a good couple of days. Well, my husband probably calls pissing around on the internet, but in fact, I'm like. I'm researching, I'm reading medical articles, I'm reading, um, you know, shipping news, I'm reading, I'm reading and I'm absorbing. So I'm a big fan of spending time by yourself, feeding your brain. So I think you have to feed your brain. Um, I like doing courses. So, you know, I'm off to the UK later in the year. I've been trying to do another um, certification in future studies for the last two years and it keeps being put off, but all going well. I'm going to the UK in August to do that. Um, I try to do some professional development at least twice a year. Um, I um, I exercise religiously, as it were. You know, I got up this morning, I went to yoga, I walked home. Um, so I used to be more of an athlete and a triathlete. Um, these days, I've just gone back to swimming. So um, so I try and swim a couple of days a week in the sea. It's getting quite cold, but my family have just bought me a winter wetsuit. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, practice yoga. Um, I think, yeah, so look after your body, uh, get some, you know, brain food, whether it's reading online or reading books. I'm a big fan of science fiction, so I do read a fair bit. And, um, and I think the other one to remember is that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so if it's a marathon and not a sprint, you also may not get balance every day, you know, um, you might get balance over a year, (laughs) Or you might get balance over a lifetime. You know, there are times where you just have to suck it up and run like stink 
for two months because there's a big deadline or something on. And I think you just have to accept that that's how it is and you might end up eating fish and chips three or four times a week in that process and not to feel bad about it, just to know that at the end of that two months, maybe you can go and lie down. And, you know, um, I've I've had a few of those sprints with my teams in the past where we sort of had a, like, you can sleep next month. You know, this is not forever. Suck it up and run. And I think part of what's hard with the pandemic is that we didn't realise that the marathon was going to be so long and so hard and so unrelenting and that the finish line would keep moving. And it feels like we've run back to back to back to back to back marathons and everyone's really tired. And um, so, you know, I'm hoping now that people will take some time to rest, take some time to recover. Um, I haven't had enough of that in this last two years because it's just been so demanding. But I'm really looking forward to taking a couple of breaks later in the year and and actually leaving the country, you know, um, even though I love this country, um, just being able to be somewhere different for a bit. But yeah, I, I'm a big fan of if you, if you don't exercise, you can't have a healthy mind. Mm. And the only way to have a healthy mind is also to feed that mind, you know, learn, 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 learn. Um, you can never learn less. You can never get more stupid. You know, so so it, there is no such thing as a wasted learning opportunity. Yeah, that's great. What a what a beautiful insight. Um, <laughs> um, well, I just think in general, you know, the whole marathon versus sprint thing, it's it's a hundred percent true. And, and sometimes, you know, but also, you know, as you said, you sometimes you do have to sprint a little bit, but it's not forever, and you have to sort of, you know, it's it's more about. I have this whole concept that I believe, and it's almost like a mantra for me, which is a little a lot. You know, it's a yeah. it's about doing small things consistently, and and if you and if you take those small things consistently over a long period of time, they actually add up to a, a huge amount. And what's not sustainable is is a lot, a little. You know, um, it, does, it doesn't work. I love that so much. Like you know, I mentioned I'm in my my fifties. Um, I've never been able to do a handstand. Like even when I was a kid, I didn't do a handstand, and so. Um, so this year is the year I'm going to master the handstand and um, it's been fascinating because that little a lot is exactly it you know I'm just if I do a little bit of practice every day I figure but by the time I get to Christmas I'm just going to be like standing there and pressing up to a handstand <laughs> yeah, be Christmas you know? lunch will be Christmas lunch will be upside down yeah but you know I think that thing it doesn't just because it may seem impossible you've got to bite it off you know it's like mm -hmm. that just do a little bit a bite and if you do a little bit you're making progress. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes what happens is we see the size of the task and we get daunted by it, and so we don't begin. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, if there's something you really want to do, you know, you're going to be older one day anyway. So who cares if at 40 you decide to go to med school or, you know, at 50 you go to retrain as an engineer or whatever it is, you were going to be 55 one day anyway. So why not be 55 doing what you love? Yeah. And so I really love that idea of, yeah, a little, a lot. Just get started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me about the bees quickly. Oh, um, so my name, Melissa, is um, is Greek for honeybee. So I feel like I was destined to be a beekeeper. And um, she's also, she's a, a kind of a goddess, basically, in Greek mythology. Um but I've always wanted bees and we were living in London and I, I started this computer games company I mentioned and we took it to the UK and I raised some money up there. So I had UK investors, which meant that I had to live in London and took my family up there. And one of my um, my partner, Mike, his, one of his friends was studying at the London School of Economics and um, she came around for dinner and she was keeping bees on the roof 
um, of the LSE um, and they had a beekeeping club there. And I just remember thinking like it was something I'd always wanted to do, but I've been fairly itinerant, you know, with being an entrepreneur. It's like I've moved to Vietnam or I've moved to the States or I've moved to the UK. And I thought, you know what, we're going to come home when this is over. And one of the first things I'm going to do is sign up at the local high school for a course. So I did. I did a high school weekend course on keeping bees. And it was like, well, that looks pretty easy. And that was it. And I just, I fell in love with bees. Um, and yeah, so um, so my my handle on Twitter, if anyone wants to follow me, is honeybee geek. Um, and it was sort of that double thing of I'm a beekeeper and a geek, uh, but also my name means honeybee and I'm mm-hmm. a geek. So it's it stuck. Be. I meant to be. Um, do you do you extract honey and stuff? Do you actually? I do, but mostly um, I really just love the bees. So process, I have yeah. a belief that, like, I don't like to feed them. So I believe that you leave as much honey as you possibly can for them. So a box for them, and if there's some left over, some for us. And mostly it just gets given to my neighbours as a bribe to try and get them not to spray. Complain about yeah. the bees. <laughs> yeah, but um, with our renovations, because we're doing what everybody else is doing, we're out of our house at the moment renovating. I haven't got bees at the moment. And the neighbours have all been complaining that their vegetables weren't as good and their flowers weren't as good. And So yeah. I'll start again in the spring. Oh, fantastic. Hey, yeah. Three quick questions to finish up. Okay. Um, and this first one might not be a quick one, but what are you working on at the moment? What's the, what are you thinking about? Like you're, you're very much sort of, you know, future focus, pattern recognition. What's, I mean, maybe a better way to word that is what's on your mind at the moment? What are you sort of thinking about as far as what's coming up? Um, climate, 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 climate. Um, and uh, from a number of ways, I think we've been, we've known about it for a long time. As I said, like studied it a long time ago. Um, it's gone from sort of being loony fringe to right here. You know, there are floods this week as we talk. There are people being evacuated from their homes in Tairawhiri, Gisborne. So, so the impact of climate change on us, um, the impact of climate change on immigration, you know, I think we're going to be seeing more and more climate refugees, particularly from the islands, um, and what is that going to mean? Um, what are those transitions mean for us around climate? So how do we get New Zealand off coal? You know, um, it's, you can't buy a tomato pretty much in New Zealand unless, you know, except for a few weeks a year that wasn't grown with coal. You know, you can't buy an eggplant that wasn't grown with coal. So, so we've got some really big transitions to make um, in our food production and our heat production, all of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, climate's probably the biggest thing on my mind at the moment. And then the next one really is this question around what is it to become a bicultural nation? What does that mean for our workforces? What does that mean for our land use? What does it mean for the way we think about our education systems, our health systems, and so on? Um, and there are some other big drivers of change, but I think those are the two that I'm really having to do a lot of thinking about. Mm. And um and are here now. You know, they're not the far off future. They're like here right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting stuff. Um, out of everything you've done, I mean, I always ask this question to everyone, what are you most proud of? And, you know, you, I look back and like I said, in researching this, I was more overwhelmed than anything about all the, all the things you've done and places <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd sort of worked. And, you know, when you reflect on your career to date, you know, and you said you're not going to retire, so I say, you know, career to date, <laughs> you know, when you look back, is there is there something particular, and it might not be a, you know, a specific role or job or anything, but, you know, if you, you know, if we talk about legacy even, what is it that you're, you're, you're proud of? Oh, I'm, I'm really proud of my children. Yeah, you know, way more than anything career-wise. So, you know, I have a really gorgeous son with a beautiful wife and two children who are in the UK. He's, um, 
he's not only talented, he's talented and hardworking. Um, he's CEO of a um, production company. They just won production company of the year in the UK. He's won a bunch of BAFTAs. He's managed to, um, he was on the youth jury at Cannes. Like, so he's someone who's managed to carve a creative career for himself and provide for his family and be a good husband and a good man. Um, so I just couldn't be prouder of him. And then I have a daughter who's just finished a, a master's in creative writing and editing and publishing in the University of Melbourne. She took herself off at 16 to live in Melbourne by herself to go to university. Melbourne is the most selective university in the Southern Hemisphere. So that was really took something. And um, since graduating, she's been commissioned to illustrate magazine. And then also she sold her first comic just recently. So I just, um, I guess they're the two things that I'm most proud of, you know, like mm. um, I didn't always, I didn't have a great start. My kids have had, um, have had a very different childhood to mine and I've been able to provide for them and they've just turned out to be really decent, creative human beings and I couldn't be prouder. Amazing. How good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people, a lot of people will talk about, you know, children and, um, you know, there's no, obviously some, some people decide not to have children, but certainly, you know, I've got a, a three-year-old and an eight-month-old and I know that the the second that um, you hold them or you you, you, you sort of, you realise that life is means a completely different thing now and I don't know how else to word that other than that's exactly what it what it feels like and so yeah I can't even you know to, to look you know I'm already proud of them but to look forward and you know when they're you know making their own way in the world I think it would be um yeah a huge sense of pride and and last question Melissa um what do you wish everyone knew you know like if oh. if the entire world was listening to this conversation right now and you're going to whisper into the into their ears you know is there, is there something that, that that you think that the the world would be better off knowing um I wish that they knew that they were really precious, you know, that the earth is precious and that those humans on it were precious and we should treat each other and ourselves as if we are real precious blessings, you know, and then what we might do is be good ancestors, think about our legacy to the earth and each other in another way and look after ourselves and each other just a wee bit better. Um, yeah, I've never asked that question before. It's a beautiful question. Thank you. No worries. Hey, well, the 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 gratitude is all mine, Melissa. I'm I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Like I said, I um I, I always plan these conversations out. Well, I've I've got a thing of questions, but I've asked about four of them out of twenty. So, um, it's a <laughs> sign that um I was incredibly um interested in everything we were talking about. So I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot on. So I'm incredibly grateful for for your time for sharing. I'm a I'm a huge fan of your work. I really enjoyed the the the, the day you ran at the the IOD course. And um you know obviously if anyone wants to follow you, you're pretty active on Twitter um, and yeah. it's Honey Bee Geek, is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's my, I, I love Twitter. <laughs> yes, I've, I've, I've seen you're very, very active on there. Um, not, not a lot of many Kiwis are, to be honest. It seems more of a, more of a. Oh, no, uh, I've got about two and a half thousand farmers following me on Twitter. So there's a, <laughs> there's a good, strong farming community. But anyway, look, I just want to say the same. Um, that went by in a flash, and um, just wish you really well, Kia Paitera, and um, I, yeah, thanks, and um, I'm looking forward to listening to this. Absolutely, Melissa Clark Reynolds. I'm hugely grateful. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. 
And there we go. What an amazing lady Melissa Clark Reynolds is. You can see why she's been so successful. What a what an interesting insight and you know, clearly incredibly intelligent, but just to the way she can articulate things, it's um it's no wonder she's been so successful. And um, obviously I'm hugely grateful for her time today. As I said in the interview, I, I barely asked any of the questions. I was so caught up in the conversation that we were having and it just sort of flowed so well that um that it was uh, I really enjoyed it and look I, I hope you did too. So thank you so much to Melissa, but also thank you to you for listening. Um, you know, I do say it all the time and I know you probably get sick of me hearing this if you still listen to these bits at the end of the podcast, but I just love getting to have conversations with people like Melissa and I really hope that you enjoy listening to them too. And if you did, if you could do a couple of things, it would really mean the world to me. First of all, it would be to follow the Road to Success podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just hit the follow uh, or subscribe button. Alternatively, or as well as even would be even better if you could rate uh, the podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can press, um, there'll be a little rating icon. You can rate it and potentially leave a review as well. And the last thing would be to share the Road to Success podcast. On the platform, you can just hit share or you can tell someone to go and check out the Road to Success podcast. Again, it is on both Spotify and Apple podcast as well so again huge thanks to Melissa a huge thanks to you and also a huge thanks to celebrity speakers obviously they have made um, this season of the Road to Success podcast just so damn easy to record because they've organised absolutely everything for me um, and of course they can do that for you as far as a speaker as well for your next event so if you are looking for a speaker and obviously maybe Melissa oh, she's an incredible insight and if you've got an organisation that is interested in hearing from her she's certainly one of them but they've got a, a, a huge database of speakers and you can find them all online at celebritiespeakers.co.nz so go and check them out there so a huge thanks to you, a huge thanks to Melissa and a huge thanks to Liz Celebrity Speakers until next time, love ya, see ya Bye.